Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be having a little bit of amphibian talk. That's right. We're going to be chatting with Mark Bandica, the executive director of the Amphibian Foundation. Uh, the Amphibian Foundation is a, an Atlanta area based nonprofit organization dedicated to uh, connecting individuals, communities, and organizations in order to create and implement lasting solutions to the global amphibian extinction crisis. Uh, so it was just a great opportunity for us to reach out to a, a local expert. Uh, in their field to discuss the wonderful world of amphibians, especially salamanders. Right. So we talk frogs, tadpoles, especially salamanders, some Mm -hmm. death-defying winter weather adventures. Uh, I think we talk some wolverine toward the end. Yeah, there will be cannibal morphs. So if you're getting all geared up for Halloween, don't worry. There will be some some, some uh, Halloween-worthy content in this episode. And you'll just uh, learn a great deal about uh, amphibian biology. Um, Just a little more... Info here before we get rolling. If you if you want to check out more about the Amphibian Foundation, you can go to amphibianfoundation.org. You can also follow them on Twitter. Uh, their handle is amphibianfound. On Instagram, it's amphibianfoundation, and it's amphibianfound on Facebook as well. And uh, Mark is also on Twitter himself. You can follow him, Mark Mandica. That's M-A-R-K-M-A-N-D-I-C-A. So I'd say let's get right into our chat with Mark. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, I was wondering if before we get into any questions or amphibian talk today, could you just introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them who you are and what you do? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, My name is Mark Mandika. I am the executive director of the Amphibian Foundation here in Atlanta. Excellent. Well, thanks for taking time out of your day to come chat with us. Uh, I, I was already familiar with uh, with uh, with some of what uh, what you guys were up to in the Atlanta area through uh, some of your salamander strolls and other uh, educative outreach programs uh, uh, at, uh, you know in the Atlanta area. Uh, but uh, but then I started looking into it uh, more and learning a little bit more about the Amphibian Foundation. I realized this was you know, a really great fit uh, for stuff to blow your mind. All right. Well, actually, can you tell us just a little bit about what you do at the Amphibian Foundation? Absolutely. Uh, the Amphibian Foundation is a nonprofit. Uh, we just had our second anniversary, and we focus on uh, novel conservation research uh, uh, plans for uh, endangered species, both here in the Southeast United States and globally. Um, we also have an educational component that we use for several reasons. One is it's our main way to support the foundation through these programs, but we firmly believe that we need to raise the next generation of conservationists, and that's our main target through our outreach program is getting people excited about amphibians and excited about saving them because they're in a lot of trouble. And when you say you work on uh, novel conservation solutions, mm-hmm. it, Give me an example of what you mean by that. Does that mean like non, non-standard approaches to – Yes. Um, so for example, our highest priority uh, research program is on the frosted flatwood salamander, which is um, significantly imperiled. There's one tiny puddle left in the state of Georgia with this species in it. Uh, they're already uh, extinct from South Carolina. Something needs to be done immediately and quickly. So we've developed 
um, 20 artificial wetlands where we can monitor them very closely and make sure that these salamanders have everything they need. It's the only captive colony of the species on the planet, so it's really important that we're successful. Um, we've developed these um, miniature ecosystems, which have never been developed before, so they're brand new. We're very optimistic, but that's what I mean by novel. We had to figure out something that we needed to do immediately because the species is considered at imminent risk of extinction. Um, so it's imperative that we're successful, and we felt like this was our best shot at uh, having them breed successfully in captivity while our partners restore habitat um, so that we can have some place to release them back into the wild. Um, so that that's kind of what I mean by novel. So with that species in particular, would you say that your main goal is to like build up the populations to where they can get a foothold in their environment or would it be more of a research focus to like understand what you can do to let them thrive again? We want to do research, but right now we're really just trying to keep the species alive. Uh, we're trying to figure out how to breed them, which has never been done before. Um, so – We've been charged with figuring out how to breed them, and once we've cracked that, we are going to uh, basically export this recipe to other institutions with some of our captive-produced offspring so that we can really start generating large numbers of frosted flatwood salamanders every year and have big numbers to release back into restored habitat. Do you know what has driven them to this point to begin with? Does it have to do with habitat? Pretty good idea. Yeah. So. Uh, frosted flatwood salamanders are longleaf pine endemics. So longleaf pine is the coastal plain of Georgia, but that's been reduced to 3% of its historic range. So that whole habitat is almost gone. Obviously, any species that are reliant on that habitat are not doing well. To further that, um, flatwood salamanders are dependent on uh, wildfire, mm. and that has been suppressed by and large even in the remaining longleaf pine habitat. Flatwood salamanders need that fire. So if you suppress it or if you do controlled burns at non-natural times, which is also very common, that really negatively affects the salamander. So we're trying to identify longleaf pine with land managers that are willing to either let wildfires through there or do controlled burns at the natural cycles. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. But okay. I, I wonder, do you know why they need the fire? What role that plays? I do. Uh, they need open pine savannas, which was very common and is maintained naturally by wildfire every year or two. That's how often that mm. the longleaf pine would burn naturally. So if once you suppress the fire, then the trees obviously start to grow in, they close the canopy, and that's no longer suitable for flatwood salamanders. Now, this is just part of a, a, a larger ongoing mass extinction of amphibians, correct? Yes. Um, is, now, is, is the mass extinction of amphibians, is this something that goes beyond the rate of extinctions in other species? Uh, is, is this something special or I mean, how is it linked to, you know, the, the, the typical uh, habitat loss, uh, climate change-based uh, extinctions we're seeing elsewhere? Right. Excellent question. The uh – the animals that I'm familiar with are, are mostly vertebrates. I'm sure this is also uh, a trend with the invertebrates, but uh, they're all suffering due to habitat loss and shifting climates. Um, but amphibians are so intensely sensitive to the environment. Mm. 
there are more um, declining amphibians than mammals and birds combined. So they're just disappearing at a profound rate. Right now, The if you looked at the IUCN Red List uh, website, they have 43% of the world's amphibians are in catastrophic decline or already extinct. Wow. So that's almost half. It's just a huge number. That's why we started the Amphibian Foundation. Is there a generalizable answer um, about what makes amphibians particularly vulnerable to these changes in habitats and, and the climate? Yes, there have been some uh, identified factors. Um, and then what's uh, in, and this has been since the 80s, since these causes have been identified and what's being explored now is how they are working synergistically to be even more expedient to killing amphibians. But their skin, it's really about their skin. So mm. you'll never see a frog drink, for example. They, they absorb everything mm. through their skin. Uh, anything that we've put into the environment is going to be absorbed up into that amphibian. So um, there's been lots of research done on pesticides and herbicides and their effects on amphibians that are often sublethal, but they'll grow extra limbs. It will effeminize male frogs. You know, there are mm. lots of estrogen-mimicking compounds that we don't even think about. We just spray it on our lawns, um, and that will turn amphibians female when they're intended to be male. So mm. that's kind of spooky. Um, and you can see how that would affect the reproductive output uh, for a population. I've read a lot about um... – I guess I didn't know what the cause was, but general interruptions in the reproductive cycles of amphibians. I think I was reading about maybe the eastern hellbender. Is that one that's had reproductive problems? Yes, and yeah. that has uh, other very, very specific problems to the hellbenders. One of our favorite amphibians, and it's a Georgia native, so I'm quite fond of it. Yeah. But they need pristine streams. I mean, how many pristine streams do you think there are left? You know, <laughs> very, very few. Right. So they have zero tolerance for uh, sedimentation or pollution that you often find in Georgia streams these days. And are there temperature dynamics in their uh, their breeding that come into play as well? Yes. So that is being investigated now too, trying to predict the responses of salamanders to climate change. Um, it seems like some are going to be more dependent on others. Mm -hmm. Hellbenders specifically need very cold water, and that's also going to become a scarcity as things heat up. It's also worth mentioning that the Georgia colloquialism is snot otter for a hellbender. <laughs> <laughs> so I always like to say that whenever there's an opportunity. <laughs> well, I've heard – if I'm remembering right, I've heard them sort of vilified by fishermen or something. Yeah. Like they do, they do they have a do they have a pretty good bite? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're and they're the largest North American amphibian, so they they get quite quite large. So when when we're talking about uh, potentially losing so many of these amphibian species, and particularly salamander species, like can you explain the role they play in the larger ecosystem so we can you know get a sense? Uh, our listeners can get a sense of some of the. Um, the spiraling, uh, you know, uh, uh, ramifications of, of losing these species. So this is a, a talking point I often give, and I, I didn't want to miss anything because, um, honestly, sometimes I'm engaging the public and I'm, people are like, who cares if the amphibians are disappearing? But they do a lot of remarkable jobs for us behind the scenes, you know, 
Um, we don't think about how many there are in the ecosystem because you really have to go out at night in the rain to witness amphibians. Um, but right off the top, my go-to answer is that a thousand amphibians eat five million insects a year, roughly, uh-huh. um, which is a tremendous number of insects. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of them specialize in eating mosquitoes. There, I think that buys them their oh, ticket certainly. to safety mm-hmm. right there, right? I mean, yeah. <clears throat> so if you think about that alone, um, that's usually the first thing I say. But um, they are there are so many animals that are dependent on them for food. So if you think about it ecologically, you know, tadpoles are are vegetarians. They're primary consumers eating vegetable matter. Then they metamorphose into carnivores. So they are turning that sun energy into usable energy that lots of other predators eat. Everything loves to eat. Everything that's a carnivore loves to eat amphibians, either their (laughs) eggs or their tadpoles or the adults. So they are right in the middle of the food chain and really important to the ecology of any system. So to back up a little bit, how did you wind up uh, working with amphibians? I've always loved amphibians. So, but I grew up in New Jersey and never saw an amphibian growing up. Uh, the part of New Jersey where I grew up probably been 150 years since there's been an amphibian there. So oh, wow. it's really developed. Um, but I just always loved frogs. And so my birthdays when I was little, I'd always get rubber frogs and frog PJs. I'm moving all the way up. So I've always had that passion. But when I was uh, an undergrad in an entirely different field, I thought I would take herpetology pass-fail because I was not a science person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did, and it just completely changed my life. So I was pretty late in life. I was 30. I'd never heard the term herpetology before. (laughs) And it blew my mind that you could uh, devote your time to investigating these fascinating animals and it's really my life is divided to before I took that class and after. And since then, I've been uh, really focused on amphibians. And I had a lot of great opportunities early on. What really cinched it for me is that I was eager to do field work. And I got an opportunity to do uh, to study two ephemeral seasonal temporary wetlands in a remote part of Massachusetts for two years. And... In Massachusetts, it gets really cold there. Um, So my study started in March where the ground is still frozen. There's still snow. And I witnessed a salamander migration, a spotted salamander migration over the ice and snow in March where hundreds of animals were marching over the snow. I was freezing. And these things, they can't even generate their own body heat. But they were just in mass, you know, to so driven to breed and I just couldn't, it blew my mind, you know, and watching them there, uh, some of the animals were as cold as 19 degrees and they didn't care. You know, that's pretty (laughs) amazing, but just hundreds of animals. This is a species that's gorgeous, but they're active uh, for one or two weeks a year. So your chances of seeing one of these are so slim. (laughs) Got to see hundreds and that's really, it, even to this day, it just carries me because it's uh, such a beautiful species that I got to witness. That's an amazing image. So as as far as them surviving in the cold, uh, I don't know if I'm remembering this right, but I've got a, a friend who long ago, uh, she worked with salamander research. And she told me about 
I think she said that the salamanders they used in the research could be frozen, frozen solid, and then thawed out alive. Is oh. is that sometimes the case, or am I misremembering that? Uh, you are not misremembering <laughs> that. It's uh, pretty well documented, mostly in frogs. Uh, freeze tolerance mm-hmm. is um, being able to freeze and then thaw and really have no negative effect of that. There are several species here in Georgia that can do that. Not salamanders, though, that I'm aware of. The fro- A few frogs here in Georgia can okay. freeze. But the salamanders that I was just describing are not freeze tolerant, the spotted salamanders, but mm. they can super cool. So that's being able to go below freezing point and not freeze is a fluid mechanics term called super cooling, which oh, wow. is super cool. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's an obvious thing to say about it, but it's really a neat phenomenon as well. So that's how they could be 19 degrees Fahrenheit and keep moving. Exactly, because yeah. they, you know, you would think that the water in their body would freeze, but it does not. You know, there's a limit to that, but 19 degrees clearly is not that limit. Well, I want to hear more about salamanders in general. What's amazing about salamanders? Tell us. <laughs> well, if if I haven't uh, convinced anyone yet, <laughs> um, my one of my favorite things about them or amphibians in general is how they feed, how they can move their tongues. Uh, when you slow it down with a high-speed video camera, you can really see them do amazing things. Um, I'm I've also, seen this before. Yeah. You've seen it before. Um, when I'm also a science illustrator. And um, when I was an undergrad, I had the opportunity to illustrate an article on this insane frog that can change the direction of its tongue after it launches it. So oh, wow. prey is moving. When you slow a frog vi- feeding video down, you usually see them close their eyes before their tongue comes out. So it's like a Hail Mary. Mm-hmm. That's a ballistic tongue protraction. There are other frogs uh, and salamanders that have a hydrostatic tongue, uh, control of their hydrostatic tongue. And some of them uh, can pitch it like uh, 180 degrees, you know, and so their tongue can swing out to the, I'm using visual in an audio medium, but (laughs) it's pretty amazing to watch these animals can like just whip their tongue out in mid, um, mid stroke. So salamanders, when you guys might not know, the fastest tongue known to science is a salamander. Oh, wow. And and they are named for it. These are the bullitoglossines, which means bullet tongue. And if you're lucky enough to see um, regular speed footage of them feeding, you just see things disappear. Yeah. That's all you see. It's instant. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they can obviously slow that down so you can see what's happening there. The The longest tongue is also a salamander. So I'm a nerd, but I find that fascinating because you think about tongue feeding. For a long tongue, you might think of a chameleon. They're famous for their uh, long tongue and, and accuracy, but... Uh, the salamanders have them beat, man. They're just really, really cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is that – is, uh, because with the chameleons, they seem to get a lot more um, uh, time in the documentaries. They get mm-hmm. a lot more uh, uh, of the uh, – like the BBC Planet Earth footage. You are correct. And they are fascinating mm-hmm. in their own right. But you got to give the longest tongue to the salamanders. <laughs> you know, often when I think about other animals, I think about – what must be the relationship between their brain and central nervous system and the kind of body they have and how they use it? And 
uh, we, we just don't have anything like that we can identify with, like that kind of tongue movement, but also the the speed of it. You, you, I, I don't know. It's it's fascinating to imagine what's happening in the animal's brain if it's making a lightning fast flick of the tongue to catch something, but then also maybe uh, angling or moving its tongue yeah. after it has been launched in those species that can do that. Yeah. Um, in some ways, I'm kind of grateful that we don't have to flick our tongue at moving prey. <laughs> um, but there probably is not a lot going on. It's just, can I fit that in my mouth? And uh-huh. if so, boom. So that species that I was mentioning with the longest tongue, those tongue muscles and that tongue architecture is anchored to their hips. Wow. It starts at the <laughs> hips. And that's how they're able to protract it very long. So um, when you're mentioning those incredible slow motion salamander feeding videos, I am. I think that you're talking about a friend of mine, Steve Deban, has done that research. So, oh, I think if, that might be it. Yeah, yeah. he's the, he gets masterful videos with a high speed camera, and he's the one who has done those uh, anchoring from the hips uh, research studies as well. But I would just say, if it's of interest to any uh, listeners, to look up Steve Deban's uh, YouTube channel and see those videos because they are so sensational. All right, we're going to jump in real quick and take a break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Now, some salamander research that, that I've really enjoyed reading about in the past uh, has, has concerned uh, the life cycles of salamanders, specifically uh, the tiger salamander. Uh, could, could you take a moment to tell our listeners a little bit about cannibal morphs? Now you're really getting into my realm, okay? <laughs> so uh, cannibal morphs, well, it's fascinating. Plus, it's called cannibal morphs. <laughs> right. Animals that are obligated to live in, an, in a wetland that's going to dry out in two or three months. Um, there are a lot of animals that will only breed in those types of wetlands, and those are my specialty. Um, they do fascinating things so that to kind of guarantee that they'll be able to get in and out of that wetland and metamorphose in time before it dries out. So there's that clock is ticking. Hmm. Um, tiger salamanders have a lot of unique adaptations uh, if if the resources are low, if the water is drying out faster than they think they have, or time is running out, they can trigger a cannibal morph where the largest larvae will grow an extra row of teeth in larger masseter or jaw-clawing musculature so that they can start chomping their brothers and sisters. And that's awesome, <laughs> but they also secrete hormones to prohibit that behavior in any of their cohort. Oh, so oh. they're the top dog, and they're going to stay the top dog. But if you remove that from the wetland, the next largest one will become cannibal morph. Wow. Which is really fascinating. So what you're left with is just one monster tiger salamander. <laughs> so what happens when all the, 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 the cannibalism is done? What happens to that cannibal morph? Um, as far as I know, it just becomes a very fit adult salamander. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I don't know of any research that has compared cannibal morph adults to regular adults, but I imagine that at that point they'd be comparable, meaning that the goal is to just get to metamorphosis mm-hmm. safely. And is, a is the tiger salamander a Georgia salamander? It is. Okay. Um, there are several subspecies in there in many states throughout um, the the whole country, but here in 
Georgia, they've recently been added to the state wildlife action plan. So we're just starting to get concerned about them here in the state. As far as, as diversity goes, what what is salamander diversity in the state of Georgia like? And, uh, and how is that compared to, to other regions of the United States or even the world? Georgia is an excellent place to become fascinated with salamanders um, for two main reasons. One is uh, geologically, Georgia is divided into five different ecoregions, and each one of those has different salamander diversity. So you can really witness a lot of different diversity um, with a very committed day or two-day trip. But as you get to northeastern Georgia, that's where um, one of the main hotspots for global salamander uh, biodiversity starts. So if you get to Rabin County and go north, you'll start entering the one of the hotspots for global salamander oh, wow. diversity. And not only in numbers of species, but just in abundance. So just every log will have multiple salamanders or several species underneath. So it's a great place to carefully go log flipping. Well, that makes me think, um, obviously, every region is going to be different and every species is going to be different. But if people want to see cool amphibians in the wild, where are some good places and times for them to look? What should they do to see these animals in the wild? And obviously, I, I, we won't encourage messing with them in the wild, but right. to see them. See them, yes, because we all uh, want to leave no trace when we go see these uh, amphibians. Um, my favorites are uh, winter and spring breeders. So I would encourage people um, to go in the winter and early spring uh, to witness these migrations. Um, that's often a good time. And you can get some clues by our frog friends. Okay. So if you're in the U.S., we have some very loud spring frogs. Mm -hmm. We have spring peepers. They're so loud. We have wood frogs. We have um, chorus frogs. Those are three species that can at least give you a good hint where you might find some salamanders migrating. Um, so that's probably where I would start. So listen for where it's loudest. It's just the easiest way, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Unless, you know, you can drive very slowly on the roads at night and then you might be able to see some because they are migrating. These are salamanders that have to migrate and people think of migration as wildebeests or mm. birds or something, but salamanders migrate. They just breed in those wetlands. They don't live in them. So when I think about frogs making noise, that makes me think about something that's uh, come up with a lot of other species we've talked about, you know, birds and insects like crickets, that uh, part of the habitat that they occupy that we don't often think about is a, is a sonic territory, not just a physical territory. Uh, and that, for example, with birds or crickets, noise pollution can really interfere with their way of life. Would the same thing be true for amphibians? That's an excellent question, and uh, I wish it would. The research that I've read really shows no clear indication. Hmm. Uh, and I think the main reason is that, for the most part, the female frog's ear, so you know, the calls you're hearing are males. Mm -hmm. The advertisement calls a males wooing females. The female ear is tuned to that call, so they don't really hear the calls of other species. So what sounds like a crazy cacophony of different species at a wetland, the female frogs are hearing the, sim the calls from their species and, and don't respond to calls from other species. 
and don't really respond, unfortunately, to noise pollution. Well, I guess it's very right. fortunate. No, that is yeah, fortunate. It's, it's yeah. extremely fortunate. <laughs> but uh, I guess when I when I was saying the, the context is that um, this area where the research was conducted was was hoping to be able to put some controls on noise pollution, mm-hmm. um, and it's it doesn't interfere with the frogs at all. Uh, my family and I recently went on one of uh, the salamander strolls that the foundation uh, um, uh, organizes, and I, I was just really impressed because it was uh, it was within the city of Atlanta. And granted, Atlanta is a pretty green city compared to to many other large uh, urban areas, but. Uh, you know, we just w- went to this area, this little wetland area that's uh, just in the middle of everything, and there were so many uh, salamanders that uh, uh, that uh, adults and children alike were able to to uh, to, to turn over and uh, examine. Yeah, that's one of my favorite little places inside of the city, mm-hmm. and that particular nature preserve, the Clyde Shepherd Nature Preserve, has been particularly committed to removing invasives. Uh, plant species. Um, So we've been working with them for a number of years. And um, if you saw spotted salamanders that day, I can't remember if we saw an adult or not, but um, we had been restoring that species to that nature preserve for probably the last four years. But we finally have evidence that they are now reproducing on their own, um, which is very exciting for the, you know, I told you earlier how much I love that species, mm-hmm. but it w- they would not have been able to persist if the the managers didn't remove all those invasive plant species there because they really challenge the amphibians in ways that they can't, um, it's no longer suitable for them once there's English ivy there. Oh, know, it makes yeah. it very, very hard for them. For uh, For what, like, Chemical reasons or the way it alters no, the just, terrain? or Yes, the terrain. Um, so their uh, salamanders are, are adorable, but they're not the most coordinated, you know, right. <laughs> animals. Yeah. So if you make it really challenging and if you can imagine what a dense mat of English ivy on the ground is like for a little animal that's used to not having English ivy, it can be uh, too much. They were seen there, but not in t- over 20 years. So we knew that at one time that was a suitable habitat, but then, you know, the English ivy comes in and changes everything for them. Now, uh, we, Joe mentioned earlier, you know, we don't want to mess with the salamanders, but but if one is uh, observing salamanders in the wild, what are some some good rules uh, to employ in interacting with them or viewing them? Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, one common way to encounter them is when they're crossing the road, um, and that is most uh, undoubtedly them in in some type of breeding activity. So you don't want to interfere too much with them. But if you want to encourage them or help them cross the road, that is not shunned because the chances of them successfully encountering a car are slim. So we always move them in the direction that they're heading. Um, If you put them in the way way they were coming from, then they're going to have to cross the Mm. road again. Um, I always make sure that I don't have any salts on my hands or rinse my hands off. Um, and that's, that's a pretty safe way, um, to be, to be, um, safe around salamanders is if you're, uh, unless you've got the gear and gloves and everything, because there are so many problems for amphibians now that we at, at the amphibian foundation and other amphibian conservationists and biologists, we have to take many more precautions than just 
rinsing this salt off our hands. We have to disinfect in between every wetland all of our gear uh, because of emergent infectious disease, which mm. is becoming more and more prevalent and is wiping out salamanders globally. But that's not something that the average person has to be concerned with, making sure, because we always have salt on our hands. So rinse your hands. Uh, if you're going to handle a salamander, be very gentle and uh, don't move it too far because these things have home ranges that they've uh, they've honed their whole lives. So another fascinating thing about salamanders for me is that um, about 90% of many species of salamanders return to that same little puddle they were born in. So they have a really significant site fidelity where they they metamorphose in a tiny ephemeral wetland. 90% of the animals will return there for the rest of their lives to breed. So it's very important that those wetlands stay intact. You know, if that wetland is paved or if a road is put in between the, the wetland and their upland habitat, then they're just going to cross it, you know. So it's uh, something that not a lot of people think about. And when you say they return to a puddle, you mean literally a puddle? I That's my term for oh, okay. an ephemeral wetland because some of them are as small as a dining room table, you know, and that is an, an uh a suitable wetland for these salamanders. Some of them are significantly larger than that, but if they dry out after a few months every year, to me, it's just a big puddle. They're often just a foot or two deep. You know, they don't really get very deep. And so, yeah. You mentioned a minute ago uh, infectious diseases affecting amphibians. What, what kind of major uh, disease threats are amphibians facing today? Um, there, there are many. Um, some of them have been documented for longer periods of time. When I started in the 90s, um, I was monitoring a population of wood frogs, another Massachusetts native that does get down into Georgia. But one day, all the tadpoles were dead. So if you can imagine, you know, they were fine the day before, and then the next day they were dead. That was a, a ronavirus. It's a... a now it's a very well-known virus that can be transmitted by us. You know, mm. you can get it on your boots and track it from one wetland to the next. And then it's uh, a novel to that the species in there. They haven't encountered it before. They have no resistance. They die. Wow. So more recently in the 2000s, there um, was a more identifying fungal infection. Chytrid fungus is the most well-known lethal infection. Um, probably, it's recently been um, described as of Asian origin. Asian amphibians have it, and it doesn't bother them. You know, they're they've uh, evolved with it. But when we inadvertently move it from one place to another, those amphibians mm -hmm. have never seen it before, and it's mm -hmm. lethal. So it's. Uh, has the potential and has killed amphibians in pristine environments, you know, where you would think that the amphibians would be doing quite well. Panama, for example, remote Panama, where 85% of the amphibians have been wiped out from chytrid fungus. Wow. It's devastating. Um, more recently, there's a new strain of chytrid fungus that affects salamanders specifically. It's uh, nicknamed B-sal, um, the, the name is actually much longer. It's another chytrid fungus, uh, and it can kill 100% of the salamanders it affects. It's been moved from Asia 
to Europe, where it's wiping out fire salamanders, which is a beautiful and very famous type of salamander. And if a salamander gets infected with that fungus, it, it will die. What does the infection look like? How, like, how does it attack it? Uh, the first chytrid I was telling you about, you cannot see it. Mm-hmm. So an amphibian will look fine, but it's not fine. And it basically prohibits um, gas exchange across the skin. The frog will suffocate. Oh. Um, B-sal is visible with lesions on the skin, so you can see. But it's still uh, it's affecting the skin of the animal. The, the fungus feeds on the skin. Changes the dynamics of the skin. Yet again, the skin seems like mm-hmm. it's... That's where they get it because they're yeah. so sensitive. That's why we rinse our hands before we touch them because the salt is... Uh, they're so sensitive to it. I would have to guess, though, that with the evolutionary trade-offs, with all these vulnerabilities about their skin, there must be amazing things about their skin as well. Like yeah. the, there, there must be good reasons for them to have skin like that. Yeah, you're, you are correct. And, you know, they do a fair amount of their respiration right through their skin. So, And there are a whole bunch of salamanders right here in Georgia that don't even have lungs. They just do all of their respiration through oh, their wow. skin. Just bypass that whole lung <laughs> thing. So um, I've seen them, even those salamanders, just be underwater. They're able to exchange the gas right through their skin. So I'm not sure how much of an advantage that is, but <laughs> they can get by without lungs, which is pretty neat. You know, they, they just seem very, very sensitive and are always tied to the water. So you mentioned earlier there was a role of uh, amphibians in control of insect populations, specifically mosquito populations. Uh, do you want to say any more about the role of amphibians in, say, preventing the spread of, of mosquito-borne disease and other diseases? Um, absolutely. Uh, so what we were talking about earlier was a direct relationship where the salamander larvae are consuming mosquitoes so um, or mosquito larvae controlling them directly like that. But uh, there is more in mounting evidence about tadpoles, which, you know, are vegetarians, but they are c- c- competing with, with mosquito larvae. Mm. And they're making wetlands less suitable for mosquito larvae. So a healthy wetland with a healthy amphibian population is less suitable for mosquitoes, less mosquito numbers, less chances of mosquito-borne diseases. So, And there's even some more evidence that it's just not suitable at all for mosquitoes with a real healthy population oh, wow. of, of tadpoles. So you think of tadpoles as pretty innocuous. But uh, and there's also more evidence about what happens to a wetland when the tadpoles are removed. So in these populations where chytrid fungus, for example, is wiping out the tadpoles, these streams are becoming choked and clogged with algae that would normally be controlled and then it gets more stagnant and you can imagine there are more mosquitoes. Do you think generally amphibians and mosquitoes are sort of looking for the same kind of thing when they're choosing wetland environments to breed in? Perhaps in the larval stage it's possible, yeah. All right, time to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with more of our talk with Mark Mandika. And we're back. So earlier we were talking about the cannibal morphs, but uh, you mentioned that there are other ways that uh, breeding in ephemeral wetlands uh, produces amazing results in in phenotypic expression and in the uh, amphibian. So what what are these other ways? Well, um, Thank you. Um, 
So, well, first, uh, Darwin, he theorized that animals that were um, exposed to the same dynamic uh, systems repeatedly would to be able to shift their phenotype between these things depending on what the they were it was ecologically called for. So, for example, these ephemeral wetlands, which are so dynamic that can dry out and flood and freeze solid, the animals uh, have developed phenotypic plasticity where they, out of necessity, have to be able to fluctuate. The cannibal morph is an extreme example, um, but also um, many species, when they detect a predator in the wetland with them, dragonfly larvae, something that likes to eat tadpoles, they can just grow bigger tails. They can swim faster once they've detected prey, and I, I find that fascinating too. Um, and there are uh, toads, spadefoot toads, which are vegetarian but can turn cannibal morph. So that's even more oh, wow, outrageous, wow. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like uh, insane because they have these little <laughs> scraper beaks to eat algae, but then can grow teeth and jaw muscles. Oh, and stuff. wow. So the show. Like they have a built-in contingency to change what kind of animal they are depending on their environment. Yeah. And then I find yeah. that fascinating, you know, because yeah. it's all just about getting out of that wetland in time. There are other species which have evolved temporally to breed slightly off or slightly ahead of the majority of amphibians so that their larvae are just a little bit bigger. So mm. when everyone else comes to the pond, they can just start eating them. <laughs> <laughs> and I just find that fascinating too. That's our marbled salamander, and that's another native Metro Atlanta species that we've detected through our surveys here. And they're beautiful. I would encourage anyone to Google marbled salamander because they're so beautiful. Now, when we talk to people who are obsessed with certain kinds of animals, we often end up asking them, do you have a favorite uh, uh, prehistoric example? Do you, do you have a favorite prehistoric amphibian? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that you wish was still around or maybe we shouldn't yes. wish was still around? No, I think we'd be we all should. right. Okay. Um, Tell us. Well, you know, I, I also love to talk about how there were frogs and salamanders hopping and crawling at the feet of the dinosaurs. So they were here before the dinosaurs, and some of them ate the dinosaurs. So what? just think about that um, Bezel Bufo. Not sure if that's my favorite, but just because it translates into devil toad, mm-hmm. <laughs> used to eat baby dinosaurs. Oh, so it's wow. just really awesome. But um, That was a really big one, wasn't it? It was a big frog, but it resembled an extant frog, the horned frog. So they look, uh, they looked very similar to a frog we still have today, just much larger. Um, Do you know how big? Uh, I think they were only maybe a foot or a foot and a half tall. That's so pretty big for, for a frog. frog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we have these other amphibians from an extinct lineage. Uh, there's Diplocolis, which you've ever seen as, uh, as a boomerang head. Oh, uh, yes, and they're yes. Really, really cool looking, you know. And then there's Eriops, which was um, more like a crocodilian ecologically, so it would hang in the shallows and just ambush prey and was about – a cross between a salamander and a pit bull maybe because they're six <laughs> feet long and highly aggressive with massive skulls that could inflict a very serious bite. Wow. 
I love prehistoric amphibians. So, <laughs> yeah. do we, so you mentioned was it Diplocolus? Diplocolus with the uh, boomerang. Do we know what that structure was for, or is that a mystery? Um, it, it is a mystery, but I, I think what I've read theorized was that it was a hydrodyn- hydrodynamic uh, property. So it was mm. a fully aquatic amphibian. So it used it to navigate the water. Oh wow. Mm. That's pretty impressive, though. Yeah, because it was it was skeletal. It's the skull is a big boomerang. Well, so you mentioned this giant prehistoric salamander with the with the big skull and the big bite. I I think I've heard that. Uh, well, we mentioned the hellbenders earlier. Like salamanders can they can, they some of them can give a good bite, right? Yes. Um, usually for a human, it means nothing, though. But mm-hmm. like. Uh, Tiger salamanders we've mentioned several times now because they're awesome. They're highly aggressive. So we have a pet salamander. My little boy does. And he just he wiggles his finger right in front of its mouth and it just jumps <laughs> up and latches on. But it's not painful. doesn't hurt at no. all. Um, they don't have much bite force. But then there are other salamanders. Uh, there's a native amphiuma, which is an aquatic coastal plain species, which I've been bitten by and it hurts. Yeah. A lot, yeah. <laughs> very, very strong, strong bite. So I guess it just depends on what species you're talking about. What kind of prey animal would that bite be for? Um, I've seen them take small mammals. I've seen oh, them wow. take uh, fish. So I think that they're just meant to not, like, they won't let go. Whatever they bite is going to stay in their mouth. So Terrifying. It, it does sound more and more like uh, with the salamanders, we uh, and I guess the amphibians in general, when we, we see them, say, at zoos or other uh, or, or as pets, uh, we see them in the tank and they're, they're very stationary. They're not moving much. Uh, it's easy to, to just think of them as this stationary species that's not uh, active or aggressive. Yeah. And, and you're not wrong. You're you're probably <laughs> you're probably acknowledging ninety plus percent of what they do, right. uh, but it's that other portion, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, you know, we're we're learning now that salamanders, that even though they're active for one to two weeks a year, mm-hmm. they can be very active during that time, and they can travel large distances. You know, for a salamander, um, you know, up to five football fields in, in length, for example. And, mm-hmm. You know, that's for something that's as tiny and clumsy as a salamander. That's quite a distance. And frogs can easily travel three times that amount, you know. So um, it all, might also be worth mentioning that there is a third group of amphibians that we just haven't mentioned yet today. So it would be worth mentioning the Sicilians, which is the third type of amphibian. There's frogs and toads salamanders and newts, and then these limbless, burrowing Sicilians, which are largely a mystery Hmm. because they live underground. They come up when it floods. You don't see them. They're pan-tropical. They're on basically every continent as long as it's warm enough, and they're fascinating. You know, but they – and they also bite very hard, but it's only a problem if you're a worm or some other type of prey – but I, off, I like to mention them uh, whenever possible because a few years ago, the 200th species of Sicilian was discovered. That's kind of a big deal for the amphibian nerds. <laughs> um, now I think there are as many as 207, so it's really climbing up there. But uh, it's a really interesting group of amphibians that we 
like to teach the kids about and we cover in our biology classes as well. Yes, yeah, subterranean vertebrates in general it seems like there's a lot of a lot of outstanding questions and new things to learn about them. I there's always weird new stuff about like the naked mole rat mm-hmm. and all that. Yeah. Um so I'll, I got to give these things a look up. Look them up. So it's not spelt like someone from Sicily, though. <laughs> okay. It's C A E C I L I A N, Sicilian. All right. Mm. I'm ashamed I didn't know. Oh well, I can talk about them more if you'd like. But they uh, they uh, come in really bright colors as well. Some of them are solid, bright, bright yellow. Oh, wow. they live underground. Why are they bright yellow? <laughs> yeah, that's a good there's question. other ones with. Blue with white rings all the way around them. Wow. And then a recent paper came out last year. Um, Siphonops is the genus. This, this Sicilian can secrete mucus from its face to lube up the ground so it can basically swim in the dirt. <laughs> wow. While excreting toxin at the tail end so nothing can follow it. Wow. That is badass. Are you going to say badass? Because that is – Yo, certainly. Yeah, that's that fine. is just amazing, right? It's just mind-blowingly cool. Well, this this gets back to something we, we, we always touch on on the show is that, you know, you think of you know, fictional monsters, uh, you know, from comic books or films or, or, or books. And no matter how creative we think we've been in creating some sort of exotic uh, creature, um, it's, it's, all, it's almost always matched uh, or exceeded – uh, by the natural world. And the, and the salamanders and amphibians in, in general uh, seem to be prime examples of this. Yeah. And they're, uh, I like to refer to them as the slimy underdogs. You know, <laughs> it's very poorly understood, not often considered, um, you know, um, no resentment here. When, when you talk about uh, animal conservation, you usually see a picture of a panda, and they mm-hmm. are very cute, but... You know, there's a whole world out there that needs our attention, and that's why we have the Amphibian Foundation. Well, speaking of which, you know, at this point in, in the episode, uh, hopefully, you know, people who, who didn't really understand what amphibians were all about and why they were important and why they were amazing, they have a, a different view now, and, and people who are already on board are, are just more excited. Uh, but if, if people out there want to help protect salamanders and other amphibians, what, what can they do? What should they be doing? And uh, and I realize uh, you, you have a have local expertise, and and there there are global answers to this as well. So perhaps if you could start globally, and then uh, maybe speak to our, our more local listeners as well. Uh, absolutely, uh, and there are lots of things that people can do if they're interested. Um, at this point, there are many community science programs. It depends on how much time you have, but if you would like to monitor amphibians in your area. Uh, Generally speaking, monitoring programs are frog call surveys, um, and they're always looking for people to participate in those surveys. There are regional programs um, that uh, exist worldwide, you know, and there are global networks. Uh, The Amphibian Survival Alliance comes to mind. Amphibian Arc is another partner of ours that is a global network um, that are about putting species who need attention and connecting them with people who would like to provide that attention. Um, so that those would be uh, the first steps I would take. Um, and then we have a growing list of resources on our uh, blog for how to make your property more amphibian friendly, you know, and that's a, it's been a delight to put this together and also, 
having people interested in, in those types of things because, you know, they generally involve doing less yard work. You know, you want to do less. You want to let it go a little bit, at least Finally. let it get rough around the edges. You know? Finally an excuse. Yeah. Uh, leaf litter is gold to an amphibian. You know, if you're getting rid of your leaves, then it's, it's a lot less suitable for them. So you can use that as an excuse to leave your <laughs> leaves in place. Um, often an uh, amphibian Conservation programs are significantly underfunded too. So I would mention that as something that if you have resources for uh, contributing to amphibian conservation in that way, um, contact your local amphibian conservation programs and I'm sure that they'll be in need of funding. Um, and those are, those are the main ones that I can think of. Yeah. And you mentioned the blog. Um, can you share the web address with everyone? Yes. To get to the resources for um, making your yard more amphibian-friendly or even constructing an amphibian pond, um, that has been in such high demand that we created a direct link, which is backyard.frogsneedourhelp.org. And then the Amphibian Foundation itself, uh, the website is? Uh... Amphibianfoundation.org. Now, as we come to a close here, uh, we understand you have a music background, that you you are a musician. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I might be, this is like secondhand information, but did you tour China uh, in an American funk band? Um, why, yes, I did. <laughs> Please uh, tell us about that. Uh, sure. I uh, was fortunate enough to play in the very first American rock band to play in China. So oh, that's wow. kind of a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. wow. That was in 1987. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was part of a cultural exchange program that went kind of bonkers because the way I understood it was the year before the guitar was legalized in China. So they were <laughs> just starting to open up to mm -hmm. certain things. Um, we wanted to come over there with our instruments. And basically what happened was a five-city tour for the whole summer. Um, so I was um, pretty young. And uh, uh, was basically treated like the Beatles once we got there because they had never seen an American rock band before. Um, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life, and it was a very, very warm uh, reception. We were the misguided youth, so <laughs> that was our, our name, and um, it was really, really wonderful. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for asking. <laughs> I should mention that my contemporary music is all very salamander-related, <laughs> not conceptually musically, but I go under the name Mud Puppy, which is one mm -hmm. of my favorite neotenic salamanders, and uh, um, and yeah, so that's that. Now, is it more uh, rock and roll, more funk? Like, what is your your sound? Funk, funk. Yeah. Okay, uh, it's funk, and I guess at this point it always will be. Um, and uh, we have a recording studio, which is Neotenic Studios, which is another very salamander nerd name, which means the retention of juvenile characteristics into adulthood seems to fit me well. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so speaking of funk, speaking of, uh, of amphibians, what is the most uh, funk amphibian? Which is the funkiest of the amphibians? Oh, if I had to say, um, I would go with this crazy frog that I've only seen on nature documentaries, the hairy frog. Oh. So it's a hairy frog, so that's cool and a little bit gross, right? Because it has <laughs> Literally these, hairy. 
Well, it can't be literal hair, but it looks like hair. Okay. But it's really these long tubercles <laughs> that look like hair. Um, and what makes them even crazier is that um, as a defense, they can break their own fingers, and they do often break their own fingers to make the tips really sharp. Oh. And then those sharpened bones come out of their skin and they can use that to, as an attack. Now that you're saying this, Robert, have you written about these frogs I, before? I think I did. Coming back to the monster thing, it was uh, – I, th- I think the, the comparison was stuff like Wolverine. You know, you look at Wolverine yeah. and you think, oh, that's so inventive. That's so cool. Um, but but nature came up with that <laughs> in a frog. Ages ago. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And yep. So that's exactly right. All right. So I'm glad that you guys have uh, – been uh, exploring them a little bit on your own, too, because that is pretty, pretty funky. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, oh, It's Mark. been my it's been pleasure. Awesome. Yeah. Delighted to be here today. Thank you. All right. So there you have it. Thanks again to Mark Bandica for coming on the show here, actually being here uh, in the studio with us to discuss amphibians uh, and especially the salamanders. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, we really appreciate him joining us. And we hope all of you will take something away from today's episode. Maybe maybe get involved a little bit with amphibians in your area because it sounds like there's a lot to do. That's right. And uh, hey, if you want to know more about amphibi- the Amphibian Foundation or you want to support the Amphibian Foundation, again, that's amphibianfoundation.org. On Twitter and Facebook is Amphibian Found and on Instagram as Amphibian Foundation. And you can also just look look around and find out what your you know more localized uh, amphibian group happens to be and support them. And if you want to follow us, uh, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast, links out to, to our various social media accounts, a, a tab for our store. That's a great way to support the show by uh, buying cool merchandise with our logo on it. And if you want to support the show in other ways, just simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Big thanks, as always, to our audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, uh, to suggest a topic for a future episode, or just to say hi, send some greetings, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. In this episode, Mark uh, talked a little bit about his uh, music. And so we're closing out the episode here with a track that Mark provided us with. It is called Stick in the Mud, Refunked. (laughs) 